Gnostics with a G. And I wanted to show Janet, um, you know, with the G, it's not, it's not Gnostics, like Gary Gnu. Did anybody watch Create Space Coaster? Oh, that was, yeah. So you're a child of the, the 80s, mm -hmm. yeah. Great Space Coaster, Gary yeah. Gnu, no Gnu's. Okay, well, yeah. I showed Janet those old videos. Thank you to YouTube. Um, but uh, so it's with a G, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. And that's actually from the Greek word, related to the Greek word, the top of your hand out there, gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, G-N-O-S-I-S. I think I actually will use that little. Oh, yeah, we'll use that. Let me use the better marker here. Um, it's where the word, uh, well, it's the word for knowledge. Okay, so it's the word for knowledge. So what's the, it's the Greek word for knowledge. I'm trying to think if we, you know, if there's any kind of English word that's related to that. I can't think of one off the top of my head. Um, Gnosis, okay, G-N-O-S-I-S -S for knowledge, and um, the basics of Gnosticism and why it's related to the word knowledge is because the Gnostics believe that, um, that salvation was really only possible by the acquisition or ac to access special, a special sort of knowledge. So let me give you some of the basics about Gnosticism. It was a movement that was one of the major threats in the church uh, intellectually in the first, um, the first several uh, hundred years. Probably one of the greatest challenges to it. Um, and it was a movement that, complained, uh, that claimed to provide secret knowledge uh, about God or a secret knowledge about the access to God. Now... The origins of, of Gnosticism, it comes from lots of different streams. So, um, so don't think of Gnosticism as a, like a particular individual or that they wrote a systematic theology or there was a group of them that met out in the wilderness and they wrote a bunch of literature. That's not really uh, the best way to understand Gnosticism. Gnosticism was kind of like a movement that, had, that was drawing on lots of different sources. Um, some from Greek philosophy, Middle Platonism, uh, you don't need to know this, but like Middle Platonism was very, um, was kind of the key movement in the end of the first century. Um, there was also a movement down in uh, Egypt that was attempting to kind of reconcile Greek philosophy with Judaism. And so this is Alexandria, Egypt. So there's kind of an Alexandrian school. And the Gnostics drew from this Alexandrian school. They also drew from Eastern ideas, maybe even like uh, some Buddhist ideas from the Far East or Zoroastrian ideas from Persia. And I think we kind of mentioned that the, the first night, some of the influences to Gnosticism. It's, it, it has a, it's drawing on lots of different influences. And when the Gnostics started to hear some of the 
Christian message, they started to take some of the words and concepts of the Christian message and were just incorporating it in to their, um, their philosophy or theology or their whole system of thought. So they were really just kind of, it was, a, it was basically like a smorgasbord. It was a, just a grab bag of a whole bunch of ideas and then trying to work them in. Now, when it came to the uh, Christian influences, the, the Christian ideas and terms that they were using, they were not using the words, the Christian words and concepts the way that they would be understood by the church and understood by the New Testament letters and by the apostles. Instead, they kind of twisted them and changed their meaning a little bit. So that's a, uh, uh, that is uh, Gnosticism, it's kind of a hodgepodge of spiritual ideas. Can you think of a, new, uh, uh, of a modern equivalent of something like that? Kabbalah. Kabbalah. Oh, that's, that's kind of, yeah, I think that's a pretty good, that's a very Jewish... Yeah. <laughs> How do you really feel, Steve? <laughs> Isn't it like Jewish occultism or something? The, the Kabbalah? Yeah. Y- yeah. yeah. I, it just takes ideas from different garbage and makes other garbage out of it. Yeah. <laughs> just honestly. I think that Kabbalism is fairly recent. Yeah. I mean, in terms of world history, I don't know how far back it goes. But I wouldn't be surprised if Gnosticism, drawing from its Jewish sources, was able to influence areas of Judaism, and uh, it turned into the more occultic side of it. As a matter of fact, a 19th century Gnostic writer, there still are Gnostics today, by the way, um, that would claim the name Gnostic. Um, There are other movements that are around today that are definitely Gnostic in their orientation. Uh, but the one Gnostic writer from the late 19th century said, basically, all of the occultism that happened in the 19th and 20th, you know, or up to that time, um, comes from Gnosticism. They would say anything that was occultic at the end of the 19th and 20th centuries was uh, a distant descendant of Gnosticism. That's what the Gnostics would say? That's what the one, one particular Gnostic uh, uh, person said. What's that? Oh, um, boy. Um, well, some of it might become clear as we get to the beliefs and practices of that, uh, but occultic, how would I define occultic? Um, anybody want to take a stab at that? <laughs> occultic? Yeah, somebody want to Google it? I, I don't know what... What I'm going to be describing in terms of their belief, I think would be the description of occultic practices, but related to secret knowledge or um, engaging in in, um, rituals, types of rituals, to access something that's hidden. So the hidden knowledge. um, Yes, of, of the spiritual realm. And that, that's actually a very good point because that will make sense uh, when we get into the Gnostic belief. Yeah. Steve, you got a definition there? Uh, definition by the Webster's Dictionary. Uh, to shut oh. off from view or exposure, cover, eclipse. That's occult, but I'm sorry. Trying to read, I gotta go through it. Here, here's one. 
You got one? Did you? No, go ahead. Um, oh, that's the verb. Yeah. The, to occult is the, the verb. Right. The noun is supernatural, supernatural, mystical, or magical beliefs, practices, or phenomena. Okay. Is regarded as involving the action or influence of supernatural or supernormal powers or some secret knowledge of them. Yes. Yeah. So Gnostics, with those definitions, Gnostics would very clearly fit that definition of occultic. And so um, let me read to you a couple of uh, things about them, a little more details about them. It's, it's hard to pin them down. Uh, like I said, it's a whole movement that was just a grab bag of ideas. And if they found some, they would, you know, they would incorporate those ideas. So you'd have kind of branches of Gnosticism, but the core, there's several core ideas that are the same throughout all of them. So you might have some variations of them. Some wouldn't use maybe Christian language, uh, but m many of them did and incorporated them. So there's variety there. Um, so, there, so it's not, you can't really pin them down to these are their set beliefs, but there is broad categories you can, um, you can discern from them. Anybody heard the phrase Nag Hammadi? Does that? Yes. Nag Hammadi? You know it? I don't remember what it is. Yeah. It's actually a city in Egypt, and so very similar to the Dead Sea Scrolls, in 1945, an Egyptian shepherd was found some pottery that had books in it, uh, 13, 12 or 13 books and codices, so like books like we would have, like binding and folding pages, um, and found these books. And it contained a lot of Gnostic writings. So um, you might see if you go to Barnes & Noble, if you go to the spirituality section, you might see something that says Nag Hammadi. That's usually the term for all of these books that came out. So the Gospel of Thomas. Has anybody heard the Gospel of Thomas, right? Okay, that's a Gnostic gospel, and those were, those were found in that, in that pottery there. That date to about the 4th century A.D. So, um, so the Nag Hammadi, uh, it, this is, uh, the Gnostics were one of the earliest Christian heresies, um, and let me give you some um, quotes here. Um, here's a couple of quotes from scholars of it. Adolf Harnack, a German scholar from about 100 years ago, defined it as, um, quote, acute secularizing of Christianity. Acute secularizing of Christianity. Another scholar said, quote, Gnosticism is Christianity perverted by learning and speculation. Well, I mean, I think Christianity, there's nothing wrong with learning and there's nothing wrong with speculation, but to pervert Christianity through learning and speculation, that's it. Here, let me give you a, a I'll read to you a description from one scholar's um, uh, what their system of thought is, and then I will look through this framework that's in your handout and we'll unpack each part of these. So let me give you these eight descriptions that he has. Um, the following may be regarded as the chief points of Gnostic systems. You don't have to write these down. Um, but here's number one. A claim on the part of the initiated to a special knowledge of the truth, a tendency to regard knowledge as superior to faith and as the special possession of the more enlightened for ordinary Christians did not possess the secret and higher doctrine. That's number one. Number two, the essential separation of matter and spirit, matter being intrinsically evil, 
and the source from which all evil has arisen. Now, do you remember from the earlier sessions, we looked at some of the Greek philosophical schools? Um, you remember one of them? What does this sound reminiscent to, to one of those? Uh, the, the spirit is uh, the separation between spirit and matter. Matter, material universe being intrinsically evil, and the source uh, from which evil has arisen. So then the spiritual is the only thing that's good. Do you got? I can't remember the name of the, the group, but they're like all about like, the material. What is it called? The Stoics? The Stoic, yeah, the Stoic school, right? They had that sharp distinction between that, yep. Um, here's number three, an attempt to solve the problems of creation and the origin of evil by postulating a demiurge. Okay, here's this word. Okay, you may want to write this down in your notes. Demiurge, D-E-M-I-U-R-G-E. D-E-M-I-U-R-G-E, demiurge. Okay, um, Uh, so the existence of um, the existence of evil has or, or, or originated from this demiurge, which is a creator or artificer of the world distinct from the deity. Okay. Number four, like I said, we're going to unpack some of these uh, in a little bit as we go. Number four, a denial of the true humanity of Christ. So it would be what would be called a docetic Christology. Um, let me give you that word, D-O-C-E-T-I-C, docetic, docetic. And that comes from the, the Greek word to seem or to appear. We'll get to that here in a moment. Um, so docetic Christianity, um, which considered the earthly life of Christ and especially his sufferings on the cross to be unreal. Number five, a denial of the personality of the supreme God and also the denial of the free will of mankind. Number six, the teaching on the one hand of asceticism as a means of attaining spiritual communion with God. So asceticism is the depriving of the body of certain things and, you know, um, and that's a means of attaining communion with God. And then on the other hand, an indifference that led directly to licentiousness or just kind of living however you want it, okay? There was a tendency for both, both of those things to happen within Gnosticism. And then number seven, a syncretistic tendency that combines certain uh, more or less misunderstood Christian doctrines and various elements from Oriental, Jewish, Greek, and other sources. And then eight, ascription of the Old Testament to the demiurge or inferior creator of the world, some of these ideas are more obvious in one or more of these Gnostic systems. So the way I think it's best to go forward, because this Gnosticism, you're reading that and you're going, wait a second, that seems like that's really weird stuff. How in the world could this have even been confused in Christian circles at all? Um, well, we'll get into that here in a moment. So I thought the best way to go forward would be to explain their theology according to a framework of five things that are on your handout. Those five things are God, the world, man and man's problem is one category, um, Jesus, and salvation. Okay, so we're going to look at their beliefs according to these five categories, and then we're going to look at 
what the Christian teaching is, and you'll hopefully be able to see how it was that they were able to manipulate Christian language so as to gain a foothold in the church. Everybody doing okay so far? All right. There was some, some big words in that description, and so I didn't want to lose this in it. Are, is it? So you're going to unpack the things you just... Yeah, yeah. I didn't totally understand them, I heard. It's okay. Yes, we'll get to that right now, as a matter of fact. Let's, uh, let's do the demiurge right now. So God. The Gnostics would use the word God. But when they referred to God, they uh, were not referring to God as Christians would understand God. They would refer to God, uh, or we would say the biblical God, or the creator God. They would refer to him as a demiurge. Now, we saw that word here, word here demiurge. It's... It's a combination of uh, two Greek words that means basically um, um, like public worker, like democracy comes from that, from demos, and then um, uh, uh, ergonomics, you know, like the word ergonomics. And so public work or a public worker or civil engineer would be a great term for, an, uh, for a demiurge or an architect. So the demiurge, what they would call the Old Testament God, uh, was more of an evil architect. He was, not, he was a lesser deity. There is the supreme deity, uh, according to like Greek understanding, which would be an impersonal force. It would be kind of this impersonal being. They would refer to the Old Testament God as not that supreme being, but a lesser being who in kind of his evil and maliciousness, went down to the earth and created all of the material world. So when I say demiurge, we're talking about not the one true God as we would understand it, or as the, the supreme being that they would understand. Um, they're referring to, and they would call him God, but they would say when they would be talking about this God, they would be talking about the one who created matter who created the material world. And this is where all of the stories get kind of, then they have theories on how all of these kind of come into play. Um, so basically, there's, that's where we need to start, stop with God. God, the one true supreme being, is, um, is, would be kind of given a different name. And that different name is um, Pleroma, Pleroma. P-L-E, I'm running out of space on my board here, Pleroma. P-L-E-R-O-M-A. So you have a demiurge, then you have the Pleroma, and the Pleroma would be kind of like, it's a combination of God and also where he dwells. The, the supreme being would be um, unknowable, unaccessible, um, but where he, his habitation is would be known as uh, plerama, and that's the Greek word for fullness. This is important. Plerama, fullness. So they would refer to the supreme being and where he dwelled as like the plerama, the fullness. The God who created the world, the material world, because the plerama would be the spiritual world, the unseen world, the immaterial. 
Um, the, um, the Demiurge, on the other hand, would be the one, the evil one that was kind of undermining this supreme being and created the material world. We got that? Okay. Um, that's important to, to understand. So, supreme God is unknown and unknowable. Um, there would be kind of this upper Godhead that they wouldn't know. Um, now, there would be offshoots from this God that would be um, maybe higher spiritual beings called eons, A-E-O-N-S, A-E-O-N-S. This is from the Greek word for, um, uh, it's the Greek word for eternal. Yes, this is from the plerima. So these would be um, heavenly beings. Think of them as kind of like heavenly beings or angelic beings that would offshoot from them. And then you would have maybe offshoots of the offshoots would be sparks. And those would be what would be we would refer to as human souls. So again, in the Gnostic thinking, you had the plerima, which is this dwelling place of this supreme being who is not personal, not a personal God, more of a force. Then you'd have these um, spiritual beings called eons. And then you would have emanations from this divine thing called sparks. And those are human souls. Yes, we'll stop there. The Demiurge would be, um, yeah, I'm not sure if he's actually in, considered in, in one of the supreme eons or something, but so not, a spark, not a spark. No, he would be a lesser deity of some kind. And so there's different, this is where the stories diverge a little bit. Hang with me here. I know this is, this seems really crazy. Oh, Okay. Yes. So, yeah, he's a lower, lower deity. Yeah. So he created all of the material world and was, was <laughs> again, this is the different versions of the story, um, but was tricked in some way that as he created the material world, he was able to kind of breathe into, breathe these sparks into human beings, so human persons. Okay. It's clear as mud, right? Okay. That's just the God part. So here's the world part, which we, we saw in, in the description here earlier. The world would be a very strong dualism. Spiritual is good. The material is bad. The material is evil. Very strong dualism. And this would be um, this would have Greek origins, but this is also very uh, Eastern, too. Um, I think the, the Zoroastrian types of teachings had very strong dualism as well. So you have the created world. So human beings are part of the created world that have the emanations of the plerima as little sparks and making human persons. Okay, so there's a human being is, is a, 
is a divine emanation or a spark of the divine that resides into a physical person. Okay? So here you have a mix. You have something that's good, a spirit, a spark of the divine that's imprisoned into a human body or imprisoned into the material world. So man, in, so if we can look at man and sin, man would be originally part of this divine thing. And sometimes they use the word logos, which would be word for this uh, divine being or this pleroma, the fullness. Um, so man were originally a part of the divine being, were sparks that kind of passively shed off of him, came down into the material world created by the demiurge and inhabited human persons. Okay. Sparks of divinity from the spiritual world imprisoned in bodies of certain um, spiritual individuals. Not all, but you, um, but you get the general idea. Human persons would be physical beings that would have a spark of the divine in them. So man's problem then, according to this, thi this way of thinking, man's problem would not be moral separation from a personal God, what would man's problem be? What, what's that? Being imprisoned in the material world. His physical body would be a problem. Being imprisoned in the material world would be his problem, right? Yeah. And what else? Anything else from that? Yes. There you go. That's part of the this, this, this salvation and the redemption part is the sparks need to now have to be liberated from the body and be reunited back to the pleroma. Exactly right. What is your view of the purpose of the material world? Then? Well, the, the material world would be... Um, the material world would be the evil acts of the demiurge. So, so its only purpose would be seen in the mind of the demiurge, just kind of in his ignorance and in his selfishness, um, creating this material place. So they don't see a purpose in it. So which is why it lead, you often led to uh, either very harsh treatment of the physical body, because that's just an impediment. That's an evil that's an evil thing that, that we just really shouldn't be a part of. We should really kind of transcend it in some way. Or it led to licentiousness. What we do doesn't really matter. What we do in our, what we do with our physical bodies doesn't matter. It's evil anyway, so do whatever. Yeah. So from the Gnostic side, the only true purpose would be in the spiritual realm, not, not with the physical world, because that's the work of the demiurge. Yeah, good question. Well, the way it's described is that the sparks came off passively. They kind of just shed. They emanated from the divine, like rays of light would, you know, emanate from the sun. Yeah. Yeah, so man. Powerful, like, yeah, 
real. Yeah, there's. Yeah, I, sorry. I'm, well, yeah, ask Josh about the Greek mythology, like well, how it all makes sense. But yeah. Um, so man's problem is that is the, they're in a physical body and man's problem uh, as well is ignorance, not sin. Man's problem is ignorance. Ignorant of the fact that he is imprisoned in that body. Steve, would you go just throw it out the window? <laughs> just, just hit a button to shut it up. So, <laughs> there we go. Okay. Uh, so man's problem is not sin, but it's ignorance. It's not moral separation from God. Um, it's ignorance of his reality. And they would use several terms for it. They would say man would be asleep. Or man would be uh, in a state of blindness. Or sometimes they would say uh, man is just inebriated. He's not, he's not alert or conscious to his true actual state. You guys got that? Okay, we'll move on. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I wrote down two things for man's problem. I wrote down man's problem is imprisonment in the material world and man's problem is ignorance of his reality. So it's, are those the same? Ignorant of reality that you're... Yes. Ignorant of... So the, the spark side of him would be, as he is in the material world, would be ignorant of, um, of what he really is, and that is a spark of the divine. Yeah. So he is imprisoned in the material